0: Hey, everybody. For those of you who don't know me, I'm uh, Randy Drawn. I'm one of the pastors here at Midtown that primarily teaches downtown, and it's been a while since I've been over here, so this is kind of a treat for me uh, to come over. So whatever expectations you might have, I hope that I live up to every one of them and amaze you and astound you, and you leave more in love with me than Jesus. <laughs> Isn't that empty? It's sad. Uh, but hey, we're gonna jump into First Corinthians chapter eleven. One of the cool things about our two congregations is that we uh we teach from the same passage each, each week. So the pastors can encourage each other and learn together as well as uh do some of this here. So why don't I pray for us and then let's uh let's dive in. Lord, uh we tell you that uh by faith, we come to you and know that unless you reveal, how can we ever see? Unless you give, Lord, how can we ever receive anything? So, Lord, we pray that you would uh, come and be generous right now, generous with teaching, generous with conviction, generous with leading, generous with calling, and uh, be ginger and tender with us, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen. I just said be ginger with us. For those of you that don't know, that's a spice that has a lot to do with gentleness. You know, last week, you tell that I just ran in here. Uh, Last week, downtown, we were talking, as you guys were, about communion. But downtown, we kind of equated communion with kissing. We said that, that's not funny. Uh, Okay, maybe it is funny. Hang on. Is that we talked about how uh, communion is us coming and letting the Lord kiss us. And that this kiss is not like, uh, you know, the kind of kiss you get in junior high when you steal a kiss on the playground, you know, where you thought about it for weeks and then you chipped your tooth when you finally went for it, you know? And it's definitely not like the kiss you get on your first date where, uh, you think because you paid for dinner somehow or another, you have the right now to kind of step past all the, I don't know you's to come in for that moment of kissing. Uh, It's not that at all. This is, I want you to create this mental image for yourself, it's like two 90-year-old people that have been married for 60 years and have no teeth puckering up to kiss each other. Just think about it for a moment. Because that's really what communion is. Because when two people have been together that long, guess what? When they draw close to each other, there's no mystery. There's none of this, uh, you know, Tell me your story. They know the story. They know the good, the bad, the ugly, everything. And yet when they draw close and say, I still want that kiss, that is a beautiful, powerful thing. So when we come to the communion table, the Lord is saying, I know you. I know you better than you know yourself. And yet I still want to kiss you with forgiveness. I want to kiss you with redemption. I want to kiss you with healing. I want to kiss you by taking those things off of you that have broken your soul. It's a beautiful thing. But it's also us kissing him back. We don't just remember what he's done, but we proclaim what he swears to do, that we want to follow him, so we kiss him back. But this week, I want to take us in a little deeper to 1 Corinthians 11 because Paul says that communion is not just me kissing the Lord, him kissing me. It's also us kissing each other. What does that mean? 1 Corinthians verse 7. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. (laughs) Stop there just for a minute. I mean, that's just, wow. This is the Apostle Paul saying when you get together, it does more damage than it does good. Uh, I would say that church service isn't going well. Verse 18, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have been differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Well, I don't know if you heard that one line that's in there that kind of the whole passage wraps around, but let me read it to you again. Uh, As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. People are getting drunk at communion. I mean, this is not just an illustration, he's saying people are getting hammered at church. Where's that church? You know, it's really remarkable because it's not just that people are getting drunk, but the fact that the Apostle Paul doesn't then start, start coming down on the people that are getting drunk and just get all over them because they're getting drunk at the communion table. He's not saying that's okay, but he's saying there's a bigger issue at the table that's more important than you guys getting drunk. You getting drunk just illustrates the bigger problem. And the bigger problem was this you guys are divided. As a church, you're divided. And what does that mean? Well, let me try to give you the situation. Maybe we can understand a little bit better. What was happening was when people came to know the Lord in Corinth, they were from all walks of life. Uh, They weren't just all from the same group. They were people from all over the place. Some were rich, some were poor, some were slaves, some uh, were, you know, all every walk of life. And so when they gathered together, they had to have a place to gather, so they gathered in somebody's home. And the only person that had a home big enough for the whole church to gather in was what? Was it the poor man's house? Huh? It was the rich guy who had the big house, you know? And so they would gather. Now, part of their pagan festivals before they all became Christians was when they would come to worship in their pagan temples, they would have these feasts. They called them love feasts. And they would just gorge themselves on food before they would go in and worship whatever idol it is that they were worshiping. So they were accustomed to having dinner before they would come and worship. Well, the rich people who owned the house and had lots of food basically would call all his friends and say, Hey, why don't you guys come on over before everybody gets here for worship tonight and we'll have something to eat. Because we know that every, everybody else is going to get here late because they're slaves and they had to wait on their own masters before they could come and celebrate communion. Or they were poor, so they had to work until the sun went down and they couldn't get there until the day was done. So, hey, we're not working. We can get off early. Why don't you all just come on over and bring, you know, whatever food you've got and let's just have time together before everybody else gets here, right? You get the picture? So in the dining room of this rich man's house, he's gathered with all his rich friends, and they're bringing all their rich food, and they're bringing all their rich wine, and they're just, you know, having a good time. And as the sun goes down, more and more people begin to gather out into the courtyard, getting ready for the worship time. So when the worship time finally comes, all the rich people who are inside, and they've been eating and drinking for two hours, come out to join the worship service. And guess what? They're hammered. They are. They've had too much to drink. Paul is saying the biggest problem here is that this is dividing your fellowship. Because you guys are coming in and you're stuffed. You're sitting over in the corner going, oh, I don't think I could have eaten another thing. That wine was incredible. Where did you get that pheasant? Well, right next to you are sitting some people that haven't eaten all day long. And you say, well, that's so uncool, you know? Guys, if you're going to come in stuffed, at least be quiet about it. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that you guys need to fight for the unity of your fellowship, even if it means giving up your right to throw a big party before everybody else gets here. Look at verse 33. He says, so then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, You shall all eat together. What he's saying is, hey, if y'all have to eat before you come to the communion table, then you need to all eat together because the way you live out what this table is about with each other matters. If we've been redeemed, if we've been made the family of God, if we are one people that eat from one loaf and drink from one cup, if that's true, Paul is saying, live it out. Matter of fact, what he's saying is, is that we ought to bring to the surface of our lives what's true about us theologically. We are the body of Christ. We are one body. And if we are one body, then we should live that out in the way that we live with each other. I mean, Jesus said that, didn't he? He said, the world will know that you're my disciples. How? What did he say? How you love one another. Yeah, so Jesus is saying, hey, not only does it matter, it really, really matters. So, what's the point this morning and what's the message that I bring to you from the Word? It's pretty simple. Quit getting drunk at communion. (laughs) Now, if you're new here, we serve grape juice. There's no chance you're going to get drunk. We can talk about that another time. See, because it couldn't possibly be that God is saying to us here at Midtown, quit being so divided. Right? I mean, when was the last time you left church here and you went out to the parking lot and you're with some people and y'all are all laughing and you don't really know each other that well, but you're getting to know each other. And so it's kind of nervous, laughing too hard, kind of, you know, and they go, hey, we're going to go to the Palm." and eat a really, 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 really expensive lunch and drink a lot of really expensive wine. Can you afford that? I can't. (laughs) Ha! You can't go. When was the last time that happened here? Okay, if that happened here and I just rubbed that in somebody's face, I'm so sorry, all right? That probably doesn't happen a lot. So our division here at Midtown is probably not over people that can afford to eat really, really expensive food and those of you that are going hungry. None of you look like you're going hungry, all right? So we're not divided, right? Well, let's think about that. Are we divided? Is it possible to have divisions here at Midtown? What divides us? Well, let's think about a few things. What about the artist, and the non-artist in this crowd? Is it possible to be divided by the people that, that are serious artists and the people that can't carry a tune in a bucket? Or how about the moms and the women that have no children? Can there be a division there? Is that possible to have a division just because there's a difference Or how about the people that are cool and the people that are not cool? Or for those of you that are not cool, let me assure you, you have no idea that you're not cool. That's part of why you're not cool, is that you think you're cool. So if you think you're cool this morning, you have a 50% chance of actually not being cool because you've deceived yourself into thinking that you're cool, all right? In other words, you're in trouble, all right? Is it possible for us to be divided by that, the geeks and the non-geeks? Is it possible to be in conflict here? Is it possible for there to be division between the both sides of the conflict? There's this side and all the people that are a part of this side of the conflict, and then there's this conflict and everybody that's a part. And each camp kind of has its points and its counterpoints, and it's the division. How about this? (laughs) Is it possible for us to be divided by those who are hot and those who are not hot? Let's ponder this just for a moment, shall we? Have you ever walked into, and I'm speaking primarily to you single people. Have you ever walked into church and you spotted someone that you put in one of those two categories? And it determined in which direction you were going to walk to find a seat. You know, the hot meter. Let's go sit over here. Come on. Is it possible to be divided that way? I want to suggest to you that it is possible, it's not only possible, but it's more than possible, it's probable that I could be divided with people on every one of those points. Matter of fact, I can find division on the smallest things. I can even find division on nothing. In other words, I can find this division in community by just what I assume that you're thinking. I can just assume that you're thinking something Even though you're not saying anything or you're not doing anything, I can just assume it and find a point of division there. Well, if you're going to think that, then you didn't even say anything. I have the ability to put everybody in a box. Do you have that ability to where you meet someone, you size them up, and you have a box that you you put them in, and with each of those boxes come a judgment by which I determine whether or not you're somebody that I'm in community with or outside of community with, whether you're safe or you're not safe. So what should we do? Maybe we should all dress alike. You know, we all become Amish, you know, and uh, we all wear the same cologne and, you know, and we throw all our money here in the middle of the floor and we divide it up evenly so nobody has more, nobody has less. Well, Paul doesn't promote socialism. He's not saying that. Matter of fact, Paul in the next chapter, and we'll learn about this next week, is saying just the opposite of that. He said, we should celebrate the uniqueness of each of you. We should celebrate the unique gifts you have. We should celebrate the unique calling you have. We even should celebrate the unique position that you have. Some of you are rich. Some of you are not so rich. But how do we walk into this community? And I want to just say three quick things, and then we'll be through about how I want to encourage you. How to promote unity here at Midtown. The first thing is I want to encourage you to kiss yourself before you try to kiss somebody else. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, go with me to James chapter 4. My notes are all messed up from this morning. And uh, verse 1, I want to read you a passage there about conflict. Verse 1, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? We're going to come back to that. You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. But go back up. Why do we fight? Why are we separated? Why is there division? Because the desires that battle within you. And there's this picture of I've got these desires that are working against one another, and they're at battle with each other inside of me to the point to where I fight with you. I've got conflicting desires inside of me that I can't resolve. And as a result, I'm going to quarrel with you. What does that mean? Are desires bad? Because they sound like mean little boogers, you know? Like, is that bad? Well, here's what I want to suggest to you. I have deep desires that the Lord has placed inside of me, and so do you. And I'm talking about huge desires, deep desires. Deep desires. And what's frightening about me realizing that I have these deep desires inside of me is if I'm willing to look at them, I'm also going to have to admit that I don't have the ability to meet those desires. I don't. It's a staggering thing. And it's such a frightful thing. What I do is I cheapen those desires, and I cheapen them to the place that I feel like I can control them and meet them. Let me give you an example, shall I? What about intimacy? hang on, I believe that intimacy, a deep desire for intimacy is a thumbprint from the fall. I deeply long to be loved and I deeply long to be known. Can those two things go together? Because one of my deepest fears is there's nobody that can possibly really, really know me and also deeply, deeply love me. Because we believe that the more somebody gets to know me, the less they're going to love me. Because when you start peeling away the layers down there, what are they going to see when they get down there? But I long for that. I have a deep desire inside of me. And guess what? When I am unwilling to get that intimacy, that desire met within my own life, I'll cheapen it to a place to where I think I can get that met. And one of those ways that I do that is I begin to express my sexuality in ways that Scripture has never allowed us to express it. Scripture says the only place that that's allowed and celebrated and promoted is within marriage. And when I take it outside of that, I'm really saying I'm cheapening my desire for intimacy to a place where I think I can feel better and it feels like intimacy. So I cheapen it. Another example of that is peace. I long for peace in my life. Don't you long for peace in your life? I think that's a thumbprint from the fall that God put deep inside of me a desire for peace. I long for peace, peace of mind, peace of heart, you know, just a deep abiding peace. But that seems so huge. Like, how can I meet that desire? And since I can't meet that desire, I'll cheapen that, and that's where I get my addictions. Anything that's going to ease the pain of my restlessness, anything that's going to make me not feel the deep hunger I have for peace. Another example is love. And I think the Lord gave me a deep desire to love and a deep desire to be loved. And the Lord even says to us, he challenges us to grasp how deep and wide and long his love is because that's what fills us up to the very fullness of God. But when I'm unwilling to go down and look at the size of that desire to be loved, I cheapen it. And one of the ways that I cheapen it is by relationships. Then I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to put on you, and here's the magic word, expectations. And I'm going to start to believe, you know what? If I could just get the right kind of friends, I'm going to be okay. Or here's an expectation. Hey, don't worry. Get married. That'll make you happy. Trust me, I've been married for 24 years and marriage, that it will make you happy. Okay, I just lied. Uh, Marriage cannot make you happy, you know? Marriage can add to your happiness, but it can't make me happy any more than my friends can make me happy. But I will cheapen my desire for love and put it on expectations of what I want from you. It's remarkable how we begin to start living out of expectation. When I'm unwilling to recognize my deep desires and I begin to cheapen them, then I come into a community like this and my desires are now battling against each other because I'm coming in with huge expectations. I want something to happen when I come in here. And I want something from you guys when I come in here. And if those expectations aren't met, I'm not satisfied. Because what does expectation say? If I get what I want, then everything will be okay. Nobody's going to get hurt, right? But if my expectations aren't met, then I'm not getting what I want. Everything's not going to be okay. But if I go to the deepest place to where I say I have deep abiding desires and those desires come from the Lord, I have to ask one question. Why did the Lord put those things inside of me? So that he could meet them. That's why it says in the Psalms he gives us the desires of our heart. And that's the difference between expectation and hope. Hope brings me to the Lord. And the Lord speaks to that place that longs for intimacy. He speaks to that place and says, I give you peace. He speaks to that place that desires to be loved and says, I love you with an everlasting love. And when he fills me up in those places, then I can take the next step into community. I come in here with hope, not expectation. Expectations divide, hope unify. Because hope gives me the ability to do one thing. And that is, I see you. I know this is uh, so corny, but, you know, you got to think about Avatar when you hear that. You know, I see you. And I think about that scene where, you know, at the end of the movie where, uh, I'm going to spoil it for you guys, where, you know, she's in love with, uh, what's his name? Somebody please admit you saw the movie. What's the guy's name, that, the star of the movie? Not his real name, but his movie name? Uh. See, that is so sad. His name was Abraham. He was a Jewish avatar, you know. <laughs> Mazel tov, you know. Sully, that, is that it? Okay, close. All right. You know where the scene where she finally sees him for what he really is? Uh, you know, a skinny little white guy. You know, there's no blue to him. He's not even Smurf blue. You know, he's just okay. You know, yeah. And she looks at him, but she doesn't look at him with disdain. She, long, she looks at him and she goes, you know, in her best avatar voice, I see you. Meaning, I, I love you. I, I see you for who you are. And when I come into a community with hope, when I come into a community with the reality that God has met my deepest desires and he is filled with, with hope, guess what happens? I get to see you. Meaning, I get to have hope for you. And what does that mean? 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, So from now on, we regard nobody from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. In other words, I'm not going to see you the same anymore. How do I see you? I don't see you by what clothes you wear. I don't see you by the money that you have. I don't see you by how you smell. Okay, maybe. I don't see you by your social graces. I don't see you by whether you're cool or you're not cool or what you do for a living. That's not what I see first. What I see first is that you belong to him. Christ is in you, the hope of glory. You're the forgiven one. You're blessed. You're loved. You're holy. I love what uh, C.S. Lewis said about this. If I can just find his quote, it's in here somewhere where he talks about that we've been found out. Hang on, stay with me. My notes got jumbled on the way over. But C.S. Lewis, in The Weight of Glory, says, there are no ordinary people. Matter of fact, you've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilizations, these are mortals. But it is in mortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he is our Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way. For him also, Christ the glorifier and the glorified, glory himself, is truly hidden. It's only when I come to a community of hope that I'm, I'm able to look at you that way. Ah, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then I begin to smell it, and I begin to look for it, the work of the Holy Spirit in your own life. I actually begin to enjoy it. And then something beautiful happens in community. I begin to see myself in you. Yesterday uh, I did a wedding, and um, it's always, I, I know I've said this before, some of you have heard this from me, but I just cannot take my eyes off the groom when the bride begins to walk down the aisle. And the reason is, is because I've never more clearly seen the bride at that moment. When I look at his face, when he sees her in her wedding gown, coming down to say, I will be yours forever. She is never more beautiful than she is in that moment in his face. Do Y'all get that? That's what community is. Do you see yourself in each other? Do you see the Christ, the hope of glory in you that is saying that to each other? Well, here's the last point I'll make to tear down whatever walls of unit or division that may be in this place. I want to ask you to do something and I want you to kiss each other. Some of you are going, thank God this finally happened. Let me change seats. Wait just a second. All right. No, that's not what I mean. All right. That's not, I'm not talking literally kissing each other. I'll have to tell you one day about my roommate in college that, uh, A good Catholic boy from South Louisiana that I took to a charismatic Bible study where every woman hugged and greeted him with a holy kiss, and he was convinced now he has found his new calling in life. But that's another time. I want you to kiss each other by doing one simple thing, inviting. I want you to step out of your safe circle. I want you to step out of the place that's easy for you I want you to be led by a theology that is deeper than what you see in reality. And I want you to invite somebody into your world. Or invite yourself into somebody else's world. Not with expectations. Are you going to be the kind of friend that's going to make me happy? Are you going to make my life better? Or is it going to be cool for me to be your friend? But with hope that I will see you and hope that you will see me. Peter Block wrote this book called Community And he has one sentence in it that's worth the price of the book. Change is self-inflicted wounds. (laughs) Some of us, that's going to be a huge change. For us to step across the aisle, step out of your little circle into another world and say, I invite you for the sake of unity to know your name. It's risky. It really is risky. When we invite, guess what we risk? I was in ninth grade. The very first girl that I ever asked to anything, Janet Ernest, it was homecoming dance. I called her. I I bet you I dialed that number 100 times and hung up. That was back when you dialed numbers, all right? Nobody had cell phones. There were no cell phones. I finally got her on there, and I was shaking, and I was like, hey, Janet, this is Randy. And uh, yeah, just, you know, go to the dance, you know what she said? A beautiful, defining moment in my life. No. Oh, Rejection. Like, she shut me down. I mean, it was cold. There wasn't even an explanation. There wasn't even a, you're a nice guy, you know, you don't sweat a lot. It's kind of nice of you to call me. I feel so special that someone would say. None of that. It was just no. And she didn't even talk to me after that. Like, you know, it was cold. Shut down. So I didn't date anybody for 30 years and uh, ordered Renee by mail order. No. <laughs> hey, you're going to risk, and I'm telling you something. Somebody's going to step on you. But you've got to change, people. We cannot afford not to be united. You know what? The, the grace of God, I believe, is limited even in our communities to the level in which we're willing to love each other. And you got to risk it. And I'm asking you to risk it. There are people in here, you're like, you know, there's nothing for me to profit uh, by being this person's friend except for the fact that the Lord says you will see me in the process. Hunger the Lord more than you hunger each other. But I'm also going to tell you that receiving the invitation is also a risk too. I remember when Renee and I first started dating, her parents wanted to meet me. Have any of you ever been there? If I... So Renee goes, oh, come on, it'll be great fun. That's always the setup that you're going to hate this, all right? So we drive to her hometown, and we're driving in town. She goes, oh, I forgot to tell you something. That's another setup. Please just open the door, and I'll jump out right now. You don't even have to slow down, you know? She goes, I forgot to tell you something. You're going to play golf with Daddy and his friends. Yes. So I'm just going to drop you off at the country club, which is right here. (laughs) He'll bring you home. See ya. Okay, let me explain. I'm in jeans, a t-shirt, high top pony tennis shoes, and a golf bag that I got at a garage sale. I didn't play golf. I walk up. They're all standing at the first tee box waiting on me. And her dad's a scratch golfer. And so are his buddies. All right? If you don't know what that means, then uh, don't ever receive an invitation to play at a private golf club. Trust me, it will not be good for you. And so they're standing there, and they're all pressed, and they've got the look, you know, and, you know, they've got the sign on their back. I'm an amazing golfer just because I stand like this, you know, kind of. And I'm sitting there and tucking in my T-shirt and, like, probably violating every country club rule there is, but he, you know, is the man, the club champion for five years running. And they look at me, and here were the most dreaded words I'd ever heard up to that point in my life. Hey, you're a new guy. You go first. Receiving the invitation can be painful. Stepping onto the tee box, that was a change. And guess what? Change is self-inflicted wounds. There may be somebody here today that gets up and says, you know, for a long time I've been seeing you, and I don't know your name, and I just, hey, how are you? And you may talk to them for a few minutes and say, hey, why don't you come on to lunch with us? And you may be a single person, and you may see that they have 12 children running around their feet, and you're thinking, go to lunch with them. Okay, okay, all right. And you step out of your comfort zone, and you step into a whole nother world. It's beautiful, and it's worth it, because here's what's beautiful about it. It's the gospel. Jesus said to his church, I stand at the door and knock, and if you will open the door for me, guess what Jesus says I'll do? I'm going to come in and I'm going to sit down and have supper with you. But it's not just a normal supper. It is the dinner of champions. I'm not kidding you. He says, I sit at the table and conquerors will sit alongside of me at the head table. Just as I, having conquered, took the place of honor at the side of my father, Jesus said, that's my gift to you, that you will be more than conquerors. When we drink of that cup and we let that fill us up and meet those deepest desires, guess what It gives us courage to do? To go into community with hope and invite each other. I see you. I invite you or I receive your invitation. And we love each other because by it, we will show the world that we belong to him. Can I pray for us? Thank you, Lord. I thank you that communion is not just a vertical kiss it's also a horizontal kiss that how we come to this table matters but how we love each other around this table matters too i pray for my friends here lord that you would give them the courage to come to you the great desire meter the one who meets us in the deepest desires of our hearts and brings us life And as we breathe that in, we breathe that life to each other. Help us, I pray, Lord. Give us courage to invite and to receive that invitation. In Christ's name, amen.